18th century, the 19th century, the 1800s. And uh, he, was, he was in England to preach a revival, preach one of his revival meetings in England. And uh, while he was there, they brought in a large congregation of just grade school boys and girls for him to, to preach to them. And so he, he started, he was, he was going to preach about prayer. And he started his sermon just with a question, you know, what, what is prayer? And he, he didn't expect an answer. He was just, what is prayer? And then he was going to go on and he was going to answer the, the question in, in his sermons. But no sooner were the words out of his mouth, what is prayer, than little boys and girls all over the congregation raised their hand. We know, we know. Well, he was kind of surprised because that would never happen in Chicago where he was from. And so he stopped his sermon, got off script, and he turned to one little boy and said, so son, what is prayer? And here was the answer he got. The little boy stood up and he said, Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. <laughs> and I bet none of you could give me an answer that complete and concise. And this was just a kid. You know, if I were to start a sermon and saying, what is prayer? Nobody would lift their hand. And then if I said, no, I meant somebody tell me, everybody would just kind of, I wonder if somebody else will say something, you know, <laughs> that, that type of thing. Uh, because, you know, it, it, it's, just, it's, it's different. Um, George Barna is a Christian surveyor. He, he surveys, he's kind of like the Gallup does the Gallup polls, except he does it among Christians about things Christian. And uh, he did a survey a couple of summers ago and asked, what he did is he, he made statements and asked people if they were true or false. Okay? This was one of them. If a person is generally good and does enough good things for others during their life, they will earn a place in heaven. True or false? Most American Christians said true. Now here's another one. Most American Christians said true to this one too. The Bible teaches that God helps those who help themselves. Folks, the answer to that is false. God helps those who turn to God for help. Of course, the answer that the little guy gave in England came from a catechism that they were taught in school. Uh, you know, there's several of those catechisms. Jennifer, Jennifer's been, been reading one, the Heidelberg Catechism, and she's been kind of reading and, and studying it. Uh, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism uh, Catechism, which, by the way, was written in 1563, said, What is your only comfort in life and death? I'm not going to ask you to answer that. 
The catechism answer is, my only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The Westminster Catechism, it was in 1643 that they wrote it. What is the chief end of man? I guess in today we would have to say, what is the chief men? What is the chief end for humans? You know, because back then man meant everybody. What, what is our chief end? What is our chief goal? What are we here for? The answer to the catechism is that I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that was the second one. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. Anybody think that's really what we're here for? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. There was another revival preacher a century earlier, George Whitfield, in the 1740s. God used his preaching to bring a great revival to New England. And if you remember your American history, that revival in American history is known as the Great Awakening. It was a time when, when the people of New England turned back to, to God uh, in, in, in droves. Uh, and there was a Connecticut farmer who wrote and described what happened when Whitfield visited a nearby town to his uh, farm. And, and I, want you to, I want you to read what the farmer wrote. Now it pleased God to send Mr. Whitfield into this land like one of the old apostles. I felt the Spirit of God drawing me by conviction. I longed to see and to hear him and wished he would come this way. Then one morning, all on a sudden, about eight or nine o'clock, there came a messenger and said, Mr. Whitfield is to preach at Middletown this morning at ten o'clock. I was in my field at work. I dropped my tool that I had in my hand and I ran home and ran through the house and had had my wife get ready quick to go and hear Mr. Whitfield preach at Middletown. And I ran to my pasture for my horse with all my might, fearing I would be too late to hear him. I brought my horse home and soon mounted and took my wife up and went forward as fast as I thought the horse could bear, as if we were fleeing for our lives. All this while fearing we would be too late to hear the sermon. That's kind of like I imagine you getting ready to come on Sunday morning. You know, it's kind of the, the same principle. You don't? <laughs> if Jesus were here to share his words, I don't think the description of the farmer coming to Whitefield would do justice to the mad scramble we would discover for people coming to hear the words of Christ. The words of Jesus right out of his mouth. And that's what we've been looking for. What, what would we do? What would it be like if Jesus was here with us? 
We talked about when Jesus was here, if Jesus was here to worship, uh, we would be anxious to worship and He would receive our worship because He is worthy of our worship and only He is worthy of our worship. And then we'd look the next week at love. Jesus would teach us how to love and we would understand what love was and, and how we could love one another. And then we talked the next week about how we would be blinded by the light of His holiness. His holiness would just blow us away more than we can ever even imagine what it would be like. And then last week, we looked at He would invite us to participate with Him in His ministry. In his ministry. And so we would, we would understand what it meant to, to join with Jesus in His work and, and what He was doing. This morning I want to talk about, I think, another thing that uh, would be a big difference if Jesus were here with us, and that is we would hang on His every word because we would believe that when He spoke, He spoke the word of truth. When Jesus spoke, it would be truth, and we would, we would, we would hang on His words. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, I want you to listen to what Paul told the church. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. We believe that, that, that the, the Scripture contains the Word of God. The truth is found in the Scriptures. And, and if Jesus were here, we would hear His words and we would listen to His words and we would uh, believe His words. In John eight thirty one, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching... You are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Jesus making an attempt to get them to receive him as Savior and Lord. And so he, he has a discussion with this group of people. It's in John chapter 8. If you want to look at it, we're going to read in there for, the, uh, for, for quite a while this morning. And Jesus is having this discussion he wants them to believe his words. Uh, and the people that he's talking to, remember this, they're religious people. They're people who, who go to their synagogue every Saturday. They're people who, who follow their law. And, and they're, they're good people. They're upright people. They're, they're, they're righteous people. They're not atheists. They believe that the Bible that they have, which is our Old Testament, they believe that that is the word of God. They believe that God created the world. They believe that Jesus exists. I mean, he's standing right there talking to them. And so they, they know that he's there. And, and these are the things that we think, not we, but religious people think, make them a Christian. You understand what I'm saying? They believe that Jesus exists. They believe that God created the world. 
they, you know, um, they believe that the Bible is his word. Um, and they think that that's what makes them a Christian. But obviously Jesus didn't think that. He didn't believe that. Um, so why would we want to hear the words of Jesus? In John chapter 8, we, we, get a, we get an idea. The first is this. The words of Jesus bring us freedom. You shall know the truth. If, if you accept my teachings, you shall know the truth. And the truth will make you free. If you have an experience with God, if you know Jesus Christ, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And do you know that, that in all the great words that John uses in his writings, in his gospel, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of themes that, uh, that John uses when, when you're looking and when you're reading through his gospel. But this is the only time he uses the word free. This is the only thing that sets men free, sets people free. And that is to know the truth which is Jesus Christ. And it's not the knowledge that sets you free. He said, you shall know the truth. But it's not the knowledge of the truth that sets you free. In other words, you're not going to be free by what you know. It's the truth that sets you free. God's truth that sets us free. Um, and so Jesus says this to them, and in, in that's in verse 32. And then they answer him in verse 33, and they say, Hey, we're Abraham's descendants. <clears throat> we're Jews, we're religious from a long time ago. You know, we're a religious family. We're religious people. And we've never been enslaved to anyone. So how is it that you say you will become free? Can you believe they said that? We're not in bondage to anyone. Never been in bondage to anyone. They were in bondage in Egypt. They were in bondage to the Canaanites. They were in bondage to the Babylonians. They were in bondage to the Assyrians. And now they live under the thumb of Rome. But they say, we've never been in bondage to anyone. And Jesus said to them this. He said, he didn't remind them of all the things I just reminded you. He said this, Truly, truly, I say unto you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. You see, as long as we're involved in sin, we're not free. We're not free. And he's talking here about spiritual bondage, the bondage of sin. And the, the essence of sin is this. I will do what I want to do. I will do what I like to do. Give me what's mine and I will do with it as I please. That was the uh, prodigal son's journey into sin. But a person who is in sin does not do what he wants to do, does not do what he likes to do, he does what sin likes for him to do and wants him to do. Because when you're gripped of sin, you're, you, you, there's a grip on you that you can't break. 
You have a master that you can't do without. You have a self-indulgence that you're powerless to break away from. And so the person is a person who loves sin and hates it at the same time because he's lost the power to do what he wants. Now he, he can only do what sin wants him to do. Uh, you know, there, there, there's countless of illustrations of that in, in our world today. You know, you pick up the newspaper and, and you, you can see it. I was reading about uh, one movie star, successful, rich, he's on a TV show, even today, uh, but he was arrested for possession of cocaine and meth, meth, <laughs> and was under the influence when he was arrested of a controlled substance, he got out on bail and was arrested again for drug abuse. Do you think he likes that? You know, he has everything that, that, that we think the world offers, but he's a slave to the sin that's entrapped him. When he first started using... He says, I'll just I'll do what I want. Nobody will tell me what to do. I'll do what I like. And now he can't do what he likes because he's enslaved to his sin. And folks, we can see that with drugs. We can see that with alcohol. We can see that with, with other habits. But it's that way with every sin there is. When you choose your way instead of God's way, you start down a road and pretty soon you're enslaved to that sin. You can't do what you want. You have to do what sin wants. Jesus said, if you knew the truth, and Jesus is the truth, he would set you free. And that's what freedom from sin is all about. You're set free from sin because you know the truth. So that's the first thing that Jesus is trying to teach them. You know, you say you're not enslaved, but you're enslaved to sin. And he would say the same things to us. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you don't know the truth, you're enslaved to your sin. You're not free until you know Christ. The second thing he says, I think his word would teach us to whom we belong. What family are we a part of? I can imagine Jesus speaking to me. Think about it just a minute. Jesus is speaking to you. And he would be saying to you, he would remind you that you are very See, somebody's enslaved to the no. He would remind you that you belong to his family. You know, when Billy Graham passed, what, a couple of weeks ago, and it was on the TV and on the news, what was the one thing that you heard him saying over and over again? And I thought it was interesting that our news media would pick that phrase from Billy Graham to say over and over again. Do you remember what it was? 
God loves you. God loves you. You know, that, that was his message. Sometimes he would say, the Bible says, God loves you. But you see, that's the word of God. And, and I think he would say that to us, that, that I love you. You're a part of my family because you're in the truth. That's not what he said to these guys, though. In John 41, he says, you're doing the deeds of your father. He's, and, and he's distinguishing their father from his father. And they said to him, Hey, what do you mean? We aren't born of adultery or fornication. We have one father, and that's God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Here how his word is involved here. You are of your father the devil. God's not your father. The devil is your father, he says. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. You know, that, that's, a, that's a pretty big condemnation he makes towards them. He says, he says, you're not of God because you're not godly. The things that you do show that you are not of God, but you're of your father the devil. You're the devil's children. You can tell who's born again. You can tell who knows the truth because he loves the things that God loves. If you were children of Abraham, you would act like Abraham. Not because you're the children of Abraham by heredity, because they were. It's important here. It's not who your ancestors are that count. It's your spiritual heritage that counts. If you were children of God, he says, you would act like him. But you act like the devil. How do we act like the devil, they said. Well, he says, first of all, the devil is a murderer, and you murder. Well, very careful. How, how do they murder? What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? What constitutes as murder in the eyes of God? Hate. Hatred. If you hate your brother, you've murdered him already in your heart. He says, you're of your father the devil because he is a liar and you're a liar. I think it's really, really interesting. The, the, the translation of the word Satan is the accuser. The accuser. The translation of the word devil, if you were not to use it as a, a, um, 
proper name, or, but, but as a description, and you were to define it, you know what it means? The slanderer. The slanderer. So when we hate, even if we think we have a good reason, if we hate, if we lie, if we accuse others, if we slander others, we're doing the devil's work for him. And whose work do you do? You do the work of your father. And folks, when we slander people, when we accuse people, we are doing the devil's work. And listen to me, even if it's true. Do you understand me? Even if it's true, we slander them. But Jesus says, children of God act like God. How does God act? Well, how about love? How about care? How about service? How about sacrifice? How about patience? How about forgiveness? Aren't you glad God forgives you? We need to find it in our heart to forgive others. Watch Jesus. Think of the life that Jesus lived. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and look at the life of Jesus as He led. Very rarely do you find people serving Jesus. Now there are some instances. But page after page you find Jesus serving others. You see, that's, that's what it means to be a child of God. Serving and service. So, I think Jesus' words would teach us who we belong to. And then I think that He would also, if Jesus were here and He was speaking His words, and He was talking to us and He was teaching us, and we were walking with Him, and, and we were hearing the things that He said and the things that He was talking about, I think, well, without a doubt, we would respond to Jesus one way or another. And that's what happens here in in John chapter 8. The first thing they respond to Jesus, and this was before the passage that we read, but but in uh, verse 13, when Jesus began to talk, he began to say his words, they contradicted him. He says, you're not a true witness. That's what they said to Jesus. You're not a true witness. We don't like what you're saying, so you're not a true witness. And, and that's where a lot of people get their start in rebelling against God, is they contradict the very clear words of God. You know, God's word is very clear about most things. And if we contradict them, then that's where we get our start in rebelling against Christ. And then in verse 25. They, they moved from contradiction to insinuation. They insinuated that Jesus had, didn't have the authority to teach them anything. Just who do you think you are anyway? Who do you think you are trying to teach us? We're Abraham's descendants. Who do you think you are? Jesus says, well, I'm the Son of God. But here's what the truth is. And that happens to us 
when we don't allow Jesus' word to have authority in our lives. Thus we insinuate he is not what he says he is. You see, Jesus' words, God's word, should have authority in our life. And, and the first time, as soon as we say, well, you know, that's not my authority for living. This is my authority for living. We choose a different authority. Then you are insinuating that Jesus doesn't have authority to teach us anything. Then verse 33, they denied the words of Jesus. Jesus said that they were enslaved. They denied it. They didn't understand. And so they just said, well... Jesus, you're mistaken. You're mistaken. And we live in a culture today where people are saying that the Bible is mistaking on that part, on that point. Folks, the Bible is not mistaken in anything. Well, the Bible's just outdated. The Bible's not outdated. You know, God's Word speaks to today. I, I, I saw a video clip uh, on Facebook yesterday. I, I don't usually t tell you about the video face clips that I watch, but this was Woody Allen interviewing Billy Graham. Folks, it was great. It was great. Woody Allen. And every time he asked Billy Graham a question, trying to catch him in a trap, you know what Billy Graham did? Well, Woody, that sounds good, but the Word of God says... Or the Bible says, and he would tell him what the Bible said, and and you know he he had no troubles dealing with everything that he said, and so somebody in the audience got up and asked Billy Graham, "Have you ever been to one of his plays or one of his movies?" And Billy Graham said, "No, I've I've never been one. I've never been to one." Um, so he said, I've read some, some of the reviews of them. But he said, he's never given me a ticket to one, so I don't go. And Woody Allen says, you mean if I gave you a ticket to one of my plays, you'd come? And he says, well, I might. And Woody Allen said, well, he says, if you'll come to one of my plays, I'll come to one of your revival meetings. And Billy Graham said, it's a deal. <laughs> right here. It's a deal. Because at the revival meeting, you will hear, the Bible says, the Word of God says. And folks, that's when God begins to work conviction in our lives, when we listen to what His Word says. Um, I'll never forget when I was, uh, I was pastoring the first church that I pastored. And, uh, some of us pastors in this little town, there weren't very many, but we decided we'd get together every once, once a month for lunch and uh, have a discussion. We'd, we'd take an article, we'd all read the same article, and then we would discuss the article. And uh, I picked an article, and, and I think this was the, the first meeting that we were going to do this, and I picked this article and sent it to the other two guys and uh, we met to, to discuss this article. And uh, the first word out of one of the pastor's mouths, the first one he said was, that's an interesting article, 
But I think Paul was mistaken on this point. And I knew right then, well, you know what? We're not going to be able to have a conversation. If you don't believe God's word, there's no conversation here. There's there's nowhere to go. So uh, the next thing they do is uh, they insult Jesus. You ever heard anybody insult Jesus? That's the next step. The Jews did that too. The Jews answered him and said, Hey, you're a Samaritan and have a demon. There's nothing worse than being a Samaritan when you're a Jew. And you have a demon. Deliberate insult. And then in John 8, 53, they use sarcasm. They say, Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. So who do you make yourself out to be? You don't think you're greater than the prophets, do you? And then it finally ends in violence against the Son of God. Verse 59 says, They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Violence against the Son of God. Violence against Jesus. So you begin to see the the steps, the way these people responded. Of course, there was a whole group of disciples who responded positively. They received Jesus' words as true. They received Jesus when he rose from the dead. They followed Jesus. Into, in, in, into the new life. So I guess what I'm saying to you is if Jesus were here and he was speaking to us, we would have to respond to him. We would have to respond to his word. How well do we do that? How, do we, how well do you respond to the God's words that are in Scripture? The ones we have, the ones that Jesus left with us. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, and he wasn't mistaken on this point, okay? Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Folks, that's what God's Word is for. And if Jesus were here, we would have to respond to God's Word we would have to make a decision. Is God's word useful for teaching? Can we learn something from God out of his word? Is it useful for rebuking? In other words, for for saying, you know, that's not right. That's sin. That's not the right thing to do. That's not the right way to live. That's not a good thing. Is God's word okay for doing that? Correcting? Training in righteousness? If Jesus were here, we would have to respond to him and to his words. So that you don't get the idea that if we do enough good things, we get to heaven. Let me make this disclaimer. Doing all those things won't save you. Only one of those things saves you. And that's knowing the truth. 
And the truth is Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the truth. You know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. <clears throat> That's how you know that you're saved. Because remember this. It was the religious people in Jesus' day that put him on the cross. Do you hear me? It was the religious people who put him on the cross because they did not respond well to his words. Those who were his disciples were those who put their abiding trust in Jesus Christ. Even while Jesus was hanging on the cross for them, they were hanging on his every word. Do you hang on his word? Do you believe his word? The word of God is at work in you who believe. I'm not going to read any more about the Connecticut farmer. But let me just say that he, 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 uh, he tells the rest of the story. He goes on to tell about getting closer and closer to town. <clears throat> and as the closer to town he got, there were more and more people just streaming into Whitefield to hear Whitfield. Until finally, he says, he began to preach and there were about 4,000 people I can't imagine preaching to 4,000 people without a microphone. And then he goes on to tell how because of the words of George Whitfield out of the scripture, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior that day. He responded positively to the word of God. I think if Jesus were here, not only would he teach us how to love, not only would he teach us about holiness, you know, not only would he ask us to uh, understand and serve with him in his mission, I know he would ask us to respond to his words. How do we respond to the word of God? Do you reject it? Criticize it? Make fun of it? Talk around it? or believe it. Let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning in Jesus' name is that as we look at your word and we hear your word, we would be obedient to your word because your word is truth. Your word is truth. It never goes out of date. And we just pray, Father, that you would help us to read it, know it, understand it and accept it. But Father, most of all, help us to receive the truth that sets us free in Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.
As you go this morning, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You're dismissed.